Well, good morning. What a joy it is to be here today. Hearing you sing together, my heart was just stirred and warm. And uh, I love your pastor. Uh, he's one of the finest pastors I have ever known. And uh, I'm so grateful he's filling in for me today down in La Plata. And um, I'm just sad I'm not there to hear him preach today. And thank you for the warm uh, welcome that we have felt here this morning. And uh, Jack and I are thrilled. I, I, uh, I had not seen the renovations uh, yet, and it's just so beautiful. Uh, I know you must be so encouraged by God's kindness. I think about, you know, like 10 years ago, and all that this congregation was going through, and seeing how the Lord has provided and answered prayers. And uh, we just rejoice with you and all of God's kindnesses to you here uh, at Arlington Baptist Church. Uh, would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for this time together uh, to meditate upon your word. God, we know that we are given life through the word. We are sustained by the word. So God, we pray you would use your word to encourage and nourish your body. Lord, and Lord, would you accompany the preaching of the word with the power of the Holy Spirit and give life, Lord, to those who may not know you today. They repent and trust in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Sometimes we are hesitant about creating high expectations. My wife you know, inquires about me fixing certain things. I try to keep the expectations low. I am not the most handy. Like many in this room today, I don't like for people to tell me to go see a movie because it's so great. It, it just always overhypes it for me. So for example, I've not seen the new Avengers movie yet. Please do not tell me anything about it. It will ruin it. When I recommend a movie, I always say, see it for yourself. Let me know what you think. I'd say go see it. Just try to you know, let them have it on their own. You can be skeptical sometimes about you know, setting the expectations too high. This morning, I want you to think with me about something God's Word brings to us again and again. There is an expectation that is worth continual building. Because no matter how much you and I build it, it doesn't compare to what its fulfillment will be. You cannot overbuild this expectation. And the prophet Isaiah wrote to the people there in Jerusalem and Judah to help them see this in, in very dark times. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. As you're turning there, let me give a, a little background and context. Prophets like Isaiah were messengers of the covenant of God who, like modern day revivalists, called the people back to the faith of the fathers. The original audience was, again, the southern kingdom of Judah before it was carried off to Babylon. Now, the book's message is timeless, though. It applies to all people because, well, all sin and need a savior from the justice and the just wrath of God. Isaiah is a masterpiece, man managing to contain in its 66 chapters virtually the whole of biblical theology from God's transcendence through creation and redemption to the final destiny of the cosmos. Many call Isaiah the Romans of the Old Testament. God gave Isaiah a single 
divine revelation, putting all of Israel's experience of experiences of defeat, exile, and return into one encompassing theological treatment. Isaiah is rich. And our context in going up to chapter 35, really the first half of the book is primarily about judgment. So if you read long enough in Isaiah, you, you get that sense like, wow, this just keeps going. You have to get to the halfway mark uh, to really begin to see the comfort. But that comfort is really begins in its heavier, heavier setting right here in chapter 35. I've come to bring you a message of encouragement from Isaiah this morning. And uh, I believe it was true at Kathy that said, how do you know if someone needs encouragement if they're breathing? And I'm, I'm in need of encouragement. I trust that you are as well. So just to give you a heads up, so all this judgment upon the nations, upon Judah, upon the northern kingdom, and right before the Assyrian onslaught, that's going to come all the way up to the neck, as Isaiah says, upon Judah. He gives them this word of encouragement. They're going to need it for what the chapters that follow, in 30, uh, following in 36, 37, 38. And then chapter 40 amazingly picks right back up with the theme that's right here in chapter 35. So it's good to just know. Isaiah 35 is good to tuck away as we walk through a fallen world. It's to treat this strategically set right there before the Assyrian onslaught. So it follows the, the judgment passage of chapter 34. So if you think of Isaiah's chapters 34 and 35, they really kind of are um, two, two clear summaries of the book of Isaiah. 34 is just the judgment of all the earth. And 35 is the redemption. Uh, uh, God's recreating of the whole of all the earth. So, two different towers. One revealing judgment that awaits all those who oppose God, and 35 reveals something different to all who place their trust in Him alone. Let's look at God's word. I'll be reading from the NIV 1984 uh, uh, edition. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly. Shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. The splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the, lamp, the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And the highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get upon it. They will not be found there. Only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is God's word.
You can't read this and, and, see, and not see that Isaiah is creating a great expectation of God's coming with the fullness of salvation. The page is loaded with specific encourage, encouragement. It's the picture of relief and rest here for the people who will endure much. Isaiah 35 shows the end result of those who put their trust in God. This is the end result. Chapter 34 is the end result of those who refuse to put their trust in God. 35 is the end result of those who do, who put their trust in Him. So to the original audience, God was, has a word of hope to all who trust in Him. He says the dry earth will become fertile ground and the weak and blind will be made a holy and redeemed people. This announcement of salvation describes a dramatic transformation of both people and their world. So here's the central point if you're taking notes. I'm trying to bullet down to one sentence here. Be encouraged. For God will bring His people into the eternal joy of His presence. Be encouraged for God will bring His people into the eternal joy of His presence. Now let me give a listener's guide here this morning. Beloved, this passage puts before us a decision. We can either focus on God's kingdom and His promises for our joy and perseverance, or we can stay focused on ourselves and not only end up further discouraged, but potentially derailed. Maybe even proving we were never one of God's own. Christian, you will either see the value of this passage for your fight and your walk or you will disregard it and not put it into practice unto further discouragement. To those here this morning who do not confess Jesus as Lord, we're so glad you're here this morning. You could have done a lot of things. You chose to be here at Arlington Baptist Church. We're glad to have you. Well, this passage lays before you an opportunity to choose a better way. There is the way of destruction that all humanity is currently on today. And this passage, as you can see, tells you about a different way that leads to eternal life. And I pray you will consider these things carefully. And come to the one who declares himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Be encouraged, for God will bring His people into eternal joy. Into the eternal joy of His presence. Point one. And this is focusing on verses one and two. He brings forth new life. He brings forth new life. Verses 1 and 2, as you can see, would be so refreshing to hear and to dwell on. And that is the way God's promises are to be to our souls. The picture here is of tired, weary sojourners in the desert looking for the promised land. You can, if you've read it, you probably uh, sense the Exodus motif uh, from the Old Testament being repictured here. I mean, can't you imagine they were tired of nothing but dryness of the desert? And can't you feel their longing for relief? But beyond the original audience's experience here, this passage is an illustration about longing to be forever with the Lord. That's what this is about. So the imagery here is simple. The cursed and uninhabitable land is now rejoicing and blossoming for the people. So the Hebrew pronoun them is not translated in the NIV because of how we say things in English, but it reads like this. 
the land is now glad of them or supportive of them. It's transformational. The promised land had become a cursed land because of their sin. Isaiah told them that was going to happen. And God speaks to them here, speaks to them here about restoration. The pattern is similar to the Garden of Eden in Genesis. Adam and Eve were in the original promised land. And because of their sin, the land became antagonistic towards them. Thorns and briars. So here's an observation that should be clear. We live in a fallen and often frustrating world. In our world, stuff breaks down. Society can cure one thing, but then new problems seem to come to the surface. New issues begin to arise. All the slogans about kindness and campaign promises and the acts of Congress can never in the end finally cure it all. Why? Well, God's Word not only teaches us here in the Old Testament, also in the New, in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 23, it makes it plain that creation is groaning, not singing, not rejoicing, but groaning under the very curse of sin. Every single moment, locked in bondage to decay. Now, sure, there is beauty on the earth, but there is also overwhelming death, decay, frustration, fatigue, physically and spiritually. It's not just the earth, but humanity has fallen, broken, and in need of a makeover too. Many of you remember that television show, Extreme Home Makeover Edition. Well, there needs to be one for, the man, for mankind as well. And God is the, one, the only one who can do it. Well, the earth is groaning. It's under condemnation because of sin. And when I say sin, what I mean is rebellion against God. And that's, what it, that's why it's full of sorrows and death. It needs a makeover. And God promises to make all things new throughout the pages of Scripture. He says one day the earth is going to be fully cooperative and remade for His people, His redeemed, His elect. One day it will be like spring in every location. Now I was hoping for some sunshine today, but I'm grateful we are finally in spring. Hallelujah. I'm from Florida. There was a lot of rain in the last, uh, last I don't know how long. It just seemed like it just stayed dark. Uh, daylight savings time. What is with that? Why would we make it darker earlier? I don't get that. I'm excited about this. Verse 1 says, like the, like the crocus. So the earth will be like spring. It was a spring. It was an early blossoming plant. Looking forward to the day when God will make all things new. This is the language we, they would use to help explain this. Friend, are you tired of sickness? Tired of conflict? Tired of traffic? Rifts? Broken bodies? Soils that won't produce bad weather and all of that? God says He's going to reverse it for His people. He's going to evict the curse and make all things new. And in Isaiah, this transformation will come through ultimately through Messiah. The Bible reveals Him to be Jesus the Christ. Now notice verse 2, it reveals the sudden nature of this transformation. The term burst there carries that idea. The day of the Lord will be sudden judgment, chapter 34, for God's enemies. However, it will be sudden joy for God's redeemed people. One day, Suddenly, the Lord of glory is going to burst onto the scene. Praise the Lord.
Now, scholars note here a couple of different uh, locations here have meaning. The terms Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon all have illustrative meanings. The location Sharon here rep- represents beauty. God's creation will all be beautiful one day for the eye to behold. The location of Carmel would have stood for, the, for order rather than chaos. And the location of Lebanon would represent abundance. So God says one day it's going to be like God took the best locations and made them into one. I want to go to there. How about you? And the best part in verse 2 is that the entire earth, verse 2, will be filled with the glory, the splendor of God. That's the best part. What used to be confined in a small way to the tabernacle or to the temple in the Holy of Holies is going to break loose through the whole cosmos. The whole earth will be filled, filled with the glory of God. Think with me. God is so awesome, so glorious, so holy. The sight of Him would kill us all in our sinful, rebellious, and fallen condition. But one day... God's going to make things new and make us new. We'll be able to see Him and dwell with Him in all of His glory. You say, Pastor Garrett, that sounds great. Sign me up for that place. But again, you must be one of the redeemed, one of the ransomed that's spoken of here. And God has to do this for you. And I'll explain that in just a little bit. But let me speak to the believer here this morning just for a moment. The New Testament teaches us that we are new creations in Christ. Born again of the Holy Spirit. Colossians argues that we, have al- we already have the fullness within, within by the person of the Holy Spirit. We have new life welling up within us. If you have Christ, you are not lacking. And that's why a Christian under the worst of circumstances can be so joyful. Because God planted a perpetual spring of life in us through Christ Jesus. One day, there will be no struggle against the flesh. There will only be fullness all around us. But here's an application. This week, why don't we try this? Let's ask the Lord to fill us with the life of the Spirit that reflects beauty, order, and blessing to all those we encounter for His glory. This should already be visible in our lives. Friends, is this not what the church is to be? Are we not to be a display of God's grace and glory. Are we not to be the people rejoicing in the desert? Are we not to be the ones who make people thirsty around us? Because the Lord has created that life in us by the gospel and the Holy Spirit. Beloved, can people see this in you? Are you asking God to make this evident in your life to those around you? For example, in your hospitality, and yes, I assume that you practice hospitality. If you don't, you should. Is your home a place a person's soul feels refreshed? Or is your, a place, your home a place where people feel dry? What needs to change? When people are with you at work, are they encouraged by the new life in you or are they further dried out by a grumbling or a worldly spirit. What about in church? Are you refreshing or are you a discouraging church member to know? Maybe fault finding or nitpicking with your criticism. Do you ever ask yourself, does my soul, does my face 
Do my interactions, do my words display the new order and life of Christ right now? Am I this kind of person? You see, the picture here in Isaiah should be foreshadowed in us, in our souls. Friends, if Jesus is in your heart and soul, it can't help but burst out of you. He can't help but burst forth in your life. And it can be known now, but make no mistake, it will be made known to all when Jesus Christ comes again. What a blessing it is to let people know about it right now. Be encouraged, for God will bring His people into the eternal joy of His presence. Point one, we've considered new life. Point two, He gives renewed strength. Renewed strength. Verses three through seven is where I'm going to focus now. It doesn't take a pastor just to observe this. I believe you all can see this quickly. What happens to folks who do not receive encouragement. Well, all kinds of bad things because people are not self-sufficient. We're actually needy. We need encouragement. People can get worn down. People can get worn down. They They can become jaded. They can be so hurt, they become embittered, they get weak and begin to give into things at one time they would have never given into before when things were better. People need encouragement. And this is the exact application of verses 3 through 7. The promises of all things being made new and the dwelling of God with His people forever is intended to give strength and endurance to the pilgrims on their journey home through the desert. Verse 4 tells us what to do with these. Say to those with fearful hearts, those who have anxiety, share the promises of God with them. He promises the faithful in Judah the hope of victory. But as you can read this prophecy, it's meant to give way to a greater and fuller meaning in Jesus Christ, which we'll come to in just a minute. But look, notice there in verse 3. What does he mean here? Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Well, weakness in the arms and knees in the Old Testament, specifically in the book, and specifically in the book of Proverbs, has to do with discouragement and fear. The promises of Isaiah 35 are meant to be a strengthening to God's people. To be clear, Isaiah is saying this. You dwell on the promises of God right now so you can get better at persevering. That's the, that's the way we would put it. If you want to get better and strengthened for the walk that's in front of you as a Christian, you're going to have to dwell on the promises of God. That's how you will strengthen the arms and the weakened knees. So we have to ask ourselves, do I see myself as strong or weak today? The Bible reveals that we are all poor and needy. There's not one member of this church, including its leaders, who do not need to be strengthened and renewed by the promises of God. In fact, is that not what we're going to do today as we observe the Lord's Supper? Are we not going to refresh ourselves and be strengthened and nourished the soul as we observe the Lord's Supper and proclaim His death until He comes again? This observation of the Lord's Supper is for this very task to strengthen you and I of soul. 
Beloved, do you understand how it makes sense to start in weakness and grow in dependence upon God? I mean, knowing this, think on how this text is applicable going forward. And maybe you're out of shape today as a believer. Your endurance is not very good. You're perhaps like me on a treadmill. You need to go from couch potato to 5K, spiritually speaking. And the best way to get in better endurance is to discipline yourself, to focus, proclaim, and dwell on God's promises of redemption. So let's get more practical about this. You can't expect to be strengthened by continuing on in spiritual dullness where your Bible is left behind and prayer time is neglected. I don't know why I'm weak. Well, have you been reading and praying? No? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a step to take. You can't expect to be encouraged in your walk by living like some kind of Christian lone ranger. That is not the Christian life pictured in the Bible. There is an actual uh, former army ranger in my congregation. And he said, even among us, we had a saying, a lone ranger is a dead ranger. We need our brothers and sisters. Our co-laborers and soldiers. You can't expect to be encouraged by building your schedule, for example, around your maximum entertainment for the week. You know, uh, in the 1980s, there was a popular song, Everybody's Working for the Weekend. That's still true today, even among those who attend church. There's this desperate ang- and, and, and there's this angst to go have this weekend. We've got to get there. We've got to have all this fun. We're going to do it. It makes, of course, it never works out. You know, you'll watch parents at Disney World sometime. They're not happy. <laughs> You're not going to be encouraged by building your schedule around the pursuit of some mac- maximum entertainment every week. And you can't be encouraged by not pursuing believers in your own local church. If you're focusing on yourself all the time, well, you're, you're going to miss out on the blessing of getting to know other brothers and sisters who, believe it or not, are going to have strengths you don't have. They're going to have weaknesses you don't have, but I promise you, there are, every member of this church is indispensable. And you can't be encouraged, beloved, by prioritizing your week around the, your children and skipping church to do other things. You have to make, friends, every effort by His grace to focus on the eternal so that you might more faithfully live in the temporal. That's how we strengthen the arms and the weak knees. So are you in need of encouragement? Come to God's encouraging word of promise. Come to Christ. Dwell on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sing about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Share Jesus with the lost. Share with them the hope of heaven. The only strength that will help you and I is found in our fellowship in Jesus. In times of difficulty, a fresh perspective on the problems we face and a renewed resolve to endure faithfully will lead to spiritual healing rather than further weakness. Now notice verse 4. These fearful ones are told to be strong because God is coming with a vengeance against their enemies. And He will save them. The vengeance is chapter 34. You can read all about it. I encourage you to do so. He says He's coming with a vengeance against His enemies, but He will save them. Verse chapter 35. And here God's promises teach the reader not to fear our circumstances, but to revere God enough to take Him at His word. Praise God. Verse 4 says, He will come to save you. We need to hear that. He will come to save you. Those who 
trust in Him by faith. And this context points to how He will save them from what? He will come to save them from what? Well, if you know chapter 24, He will come to save them from His own wrath. Do you realize that salvation in Scripture is not from our boredom or from our lack of purpose? Salvation is being saved by God from God. God says to them, divine justice is coming with a holy vengeance. God will save His people, His true people, from that day. Friend, think of how you think about injustices. And these people would have known many. The reason they, <laughs> things are so bad is because their leaders, religious and political leaders, had uh, made horrible decisions, abused them, manipulated the court system, made alliances with foreign nations rather than submit themselves to God. There was a part of them that longed to hear about God's justice. Just like you and me. Think about the little injustices that you and I probably encounter, or the large ones. Some of you go through big ones. That sense that we have of it, that is wrong. This should be put to an end. Well, multiply that by infinity and consider our holy, infinite God for a moment. He will not and cannot tolerate sin and rebellion against Him. He is perfectly just and beyond our sinful ideas of good. We can't even live up to our own expectations. And He is patient, though, with sinners, all of us. But a day is coming when the patience will be no more. Think of how God is patient with you and I. Think of the injustice of rejecting our Creator, the One who gave us life. Think of denying Him at every turn and putting ourselves forward as our own God. That is an injustice. Think of what we deserve from God in light of how we've treated Him. We deserve His judgment. But He gives salvations, salvation to those who are trusting in Him alone. Specifically to those who trust in His promises that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, according to the New Testament, took on our curse, the curse and judgment we deserve at the cross. He bore the judgment of God in our place. The Bible says that He was raised on the third day and ascended back to heaven as the one mediator between God and man. And He will return to judge. And after judgment... He will make all things new. The precious Son of God, the darling of heaven, He came and lived the perfect life all of us should have lived. Instead of giving, giving us the justice, the Lord laid upon Him our transgressions. He made Him guilty of our sins. Treated Him as if He had done it. And judged Him in our place. Jesus made atonement for any and all who would repent. And when I say repent, I mean take God's side against your sin. And trust only in the work of Christ and His resurrection. God says He will come to save you. Have you done that? Have you repented and trusted in Christ? I mean, for the Christian, this is ultimately why we can be told, do not fear. There are times in life when someone says, oh, don't be afraid. It's like terrifying. You know what I mean? Maybe there'll be some kids out there, your dad put you on a roller coaster. Oh, don't be afraid, no big deal. And it horrifies you. 
Like, you can't tell me not to be afraid. In these circumstances, in light of the work of Christ, we can hear and accept the words, do not be afraid, do not fear. It's because of Jesus. God turned His retribution and righteous vengeance upon Jesus instead of us. What do we have to be afraid of now? Jesus has taken care of our sin and the death that we deserve and the eternal separation of God that we certainly deserve. He paid for it. He endured the justice of God in our place. He's taken away our sin death. Praise God. He wants to inform you and I about this again and again and again. Because the message of the cross never gets old. He wants us to anticipate it and rejoice. He wants us to start living in light of this reality. And if you don't know God, He informs you so that you would repent of your sins and take God's side against your sin and trust in the merits of Christ alone. Now note there verses 5 through 7. These promises give so much hope because what is further offered here. In verse 5, He promises sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. In verse 6, He promises the lame will leap and the mute will speak for joy. And furthermore, He says that there will be total transformation. The desert will be a garden. Verse 7, creation transformed. So He promises here both spiritual and physical healing, well-being. Now, did God ever give a sign that that this liberation had come, that he speaks of here, verses 5 through 7. Well, yes, he did. Many of you remember Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus answers John the Baptist. And he quit with John the Baptist, had a question about Jesus' identity. He was struggling, he was doubting. And his relationship to the messianic kingdom and, and expectations there in Matthew 11. And I, you go, Jesus has so many mic drop moments. In the New Testament, just, just when he says something, he drops a bomb and just kind of walks. It's just un- heavy, like, wow, you already just said. And this is one of them. After Jesus had finished instructing the twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in the towns of Galilee. And when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who has come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Isaiah, you, know, you have Isaiah 35 in your mind. You go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Oh yeah, it had broken in. The miracles of Christ's first coming were signs pointing to this glorious consummation. It was a foretaste of the great recreation to come. And those miracles didn't solve the true problem of the human race, death, but they pointed to the total healing that God intends to give every believer in the resurrection. And then then along with the glories, along with the glories of Isaiah 35 will be fulfilled. Jesus has abolished the last enemy, death. And when death is abolished by the full redemption of our bodies at the resurrection... Creation itself will be forever liberated from its bondage to decay and be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God, Romans 8. So, Arlington Baptist Church, why do we need need to share this and dwell on this passage, beloved? Well, don't we need to remember God's promises here for our own strengthening and encouragement when surrounded by death? Some of you, I imagine it, in a congregation this size, that many of you are going through tremendous suffering. 
You've lost loved ones, perhaps, here just here recently. God's word speaks the same comforting promises to you. Christian, how are you going to get this perspective without gathering to hear clear preaching of the word and studying it when you are at home? And, and should not be faithfulness, should not faithfulness uh, in your devotions and faithfulness to hear the word preach be a precious priority for your soul? I don't know about you guys, but I miss church for a while, like for some odd reason. I feel cheated. I feel so like thirsty and eager to, to be back in the Word and be with God's people and singing the promises that we sang about this morning. I mean, when we're singing, my heart's filled with thankfulness. Who floods my weaknesses and strengths and causes fears to fly? Whose every promise is enough for every step I take, sustaining me with arms of love and crowning me with grace. I need to hear that. I need that. Life gets hard and sad. But I've got Jesus. Moms and dads, couples, how much better would our moods at home be helped by dwelling on and singing about and focusing on these promises here? Should not our, our makeup going forward include a commitment to focus on the new heavens and the new earth? It should. It should be part of our regular conversation. So what do we do? What do we do in the meantime? That brings us to point three. Be encouraged for God will bring His people into the eternal joy of His presence. New life. Renewed strength. Point three. He puts us on the pathway home. He puts us on the pathway home. Verses 8-10. through 10. As many of you know, there were three times a year God's people in Israel were required to travel from their homes to Jerusalem for national worship. And the pilgrimage of Isaiah 35 is far more significant. Because it doesn't end in Jerusalem. It ends in heaven. In the new Jerusalem. People get all upset about that little strip of land over in the Middle East. That's just, that's just small things compared to what God's going to do. I can't wait to see the new Jerusalem. The new heavens and new earth. The lesson here is God's forgiveness and grace is meant to be life-giving. Bringing about, let me repeat this, bringing about the way of holiness and peace rather than immorality and chaos. Bringing about the way of holiness and peace rather than immorality and chaos. Note there in verse 8, this is the highway of holiness. That's some kind of highway, right? I came in on some highways today. They were not the highway of holiness. And it teaches here, this one is teaching the need for absolute purity from sin. There should be trouble in one's soul. How do I get on that highway? I'm not holy. I'm not perfectly pure and righteous. And the central command concerning this is found in Leviticus 11.44. Be holy because I am holy. I'll, sometimes I am baffled when someone says, well, God would never give a command you couldn't obey. He does so all the time. Be holy because I'm holy. 
He just gave you one that you need His aid, Him to do that for you. We, you and I cannot attain to this. Be holy as I'm holy. How about when Jesus said, be born again? I can't do that for myself. I need God to do that. So the highway of holiness is characterized by people who here have been set on it by God's grace and walk in the light as He Himself is the light, loving righteousness and hating wickedness. And friend, you realize the description, this is the description of a true believer. They love God's side and they despise their sin. And who sets us on this way? Well, God does in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, Jesus made another big announcement. I am the way. That's why people say, who does he think he is? Jesus, the Son of God. He is the way to God. And our position of holiness is first set in place by the justification that is ours through faith alone in Christ alone. We have to be made holy to be on it. The highway of holiness is an exclusive way. And the only righteous, and only the righteous may travel on it. Look at these verses. The unclean cannot travel on it. This exclusive way refers to the, again, the work of Christ. For only His atoning work can cleanse guilty souls from sins. The positional cleansing of the soul from sin by faith in Christ is called justification. The Bible says that God declares you and I righteous. And He credits us. For, there's a forensic righteousness, a holiness that's given to us before the holy court, before, before His holy throne, that He will clothe you and I in the righteous. He will credit us the righteousness of Christ. That when He looks on us, He won't see us anymore. He'll see only the righteousness of Christ. If you're trusting in Christ, if He's your Savior, you have that as a free gift you could not earn for yourself. And the highway of holiness follows this cleansing. It is the journey of sanctification, of progressive growth in practical righteousness that flows from being justified by God. And beloved, remember, the Bible teaches that good works are the fruit of salvation, not the root. Romans 6, 19, Just as you offer the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now, after being justified, offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. God's process of making you and I holy. And notice there in verse 9, the highway of holiness is also a protected and secure way. Even if people are occasionally foolish, they will not wander off of it. No lion will travel there, nor will any vicious beast. So to these people, the prospect of a straight and level highway would be a wonderful thing. These highways around here can be dangerous. Maybe you've been out in some deep rural parts and you know that there are certain things on the road you have to look out for. God says, if He's placed you on this pathway, nothing's going to take you from it. This is what God promises to those who will turn to Him and trust. He will make a way through the most difficult circumstances. He doesn't promise us a trouble-free life. That's false teaching. Jesus literally said, in this world you will have trouble. But He does give us the grace to stay on the highway. No unclean will be on it. There will be no fools there. Nor will there be any devouring animals. No weapon by the enemy can tear God's people from the path that God has placed them on, friends. God promises eternal security. God's way is a, pay, a, a pathway of purity, obedience, and safety. It is the way of holiness on which the redeemed walk. 
You know, we all love to use our GPS apps today. We want the best route. I wish there was an app that would guide me about where, where my wife has placed some of my things. You know, you, you, you know where they are, guys, and then all of a sudden you come home and they've been moved and they can't be relocated. I would like to have an app for that. Where are my keys? Go, you know, go find them. Uh, the, we like to think about the best route. I looked at three different routes coming up from Southern Maryland uh, to Arlington this morning. I think I chose the best one. But the Bible says concerning the way to God, there are no alternate routes. There is only one way. There's, under one, there's only one name under heaven by which you and I can be saved. It's through Christ. And He's the very best way. Not only is He the only way, He is the best. There's no alternate route that leads to life. Friends, whoever travels by this road is under the protection of the King of Kings. Spurgeon said, to quit this road for another is to despise the wisdom and grace of God in Christ Jesus and to prefer the idle inventions of man. This cannot lead to any good either in this life or the next. And the Bible says there's a way that seems right unto a man, unto a woman, but the end thereof is death. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Are you on this way? Has God set you and your life, has your life changed by the grace of God? You, if I tried to talk you out of Jesus Christ today, could I talk you out of it? And say, don't you want to try this instead? Would you go that way? Friends, there's, there's two paths. There's two ways to live. God's way or our way. One leads to destruction, one leads to eternal life. What path are you on today? Are you on the sad religious way but you really, and you don't really know Jesus and your life is being lived in unrepentant sin? Friend, turn from that way. That way leads to hell. Come to Christ and be saved. Christians here this morning, are you excited about this way? Do your loved ones see this excitement in your life? Are you telling others about this way, the way? Maybe you're here this morning, you've, maybe you've, you've tripped up. And you know good and well, it's time to straighten up, get back on the way, repent of your sins. Stop living in secret sin this morning. Have you, have you been gossiping at work, looking at pornography on your phone, lying to your parents, fornicating, getting drunk? All these secret sins, and yet you feel so dirty today. You, you feel miserable in that today. Friend, remember, it is Christ who qualifies you for this highway. You cannot clean yourself up. You need to come back to Christ. Repent. Walk in the light. Confess those sins to God. Share it with your brothers and sisters. And walk in the newness of life, in the pathway that God sets you on if you're a Christian. Look at verse 10. Speaks here of the redeemed, of the ransomed. And redeemed or ransom means a, a loved one, a family member takes on the debt, your debt as their own. That's what God has done for us. He has taken on the sin debt we could not pay ourselves. And He has paid it beautifully in Christ. He says the final destination of those traveling the, high, the holy way is Zion, the city of God, where God and man will dwell together. This beautiful journey ending 
and the fullness of salvation purchased for them by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 10 describes the end result. They'll come to the city of God, Zion, where gladness and joy will forever display sorrow and sign. I love to sing there, that song, There's a Happy Land. Going from sin and sorrow free. It's one of my favorite parts of that song. I love to sing about how He'll wipe away each tear-stained eye. That's where we end if we know Jesus. Praise the Lord. Beloved, are you going to grow in your expectation for the coming of the Lord? And do you see the value of knowing its effect, sharing its promises, and walking in Christ's way today? I pray that you do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you and praise you for how you purchased our pardon, clothed us in your righteousness, and give us grace to travel this road. We pray, God, that we remain faithful to you all, all the way home. And Lord, that you would uh, encourage us even more specifically now as we observe the Lord's Supper in just a moment. In Jesus' name, amen.